Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. L.A.'s Hepcat were one of the first 90s ska bands to take their cues from the traditional Jamaican sound. And though their initial concept was to literally sound like a 60s Jamaican ska band, they actually ended up incorporating newer elements like modern soul, Latin, R&B, and pop, making them not a retro band at all, just not a ska band mixing punk rock in their music. Hepcat has very interesting origins. Several of the members were 80s LA scene kids and have stories to tell about this unique time and place. Today, we bring on Hepcat singer Greg Lee and drummer Greg Narvis to tell us their stories of growing up in the scene that fostered The Untouchables, Fishbone, and No Doubt, and how the scarcity of old ska push them to fill that gap. If you come across somebody who doesn't like ska, you can just play them Hepcat. Yeah. Nobody dislikes Hepcat. No. And then, you know, you'll probably get a, I don't like ska, but I like this. Yeah. One of the coolest things to me about ska is that it's all these different things. It's everything from Hepcat to Skank and Pickle to MEV30 to Real Big Fish and everything in between. It can be really cool. It can be super goofy. It can be really heavy, it can be super poppy, and it all fits under the banner of ska. Like Hepcat, what's great about them is it's like really soulful. It's like music that you actually dance to that you probably have to know a little bit about dancing to groove to. So ska is a great flexible genre, and Hepcat are a good example. And the most interesting thing to me about this band was that as soulful and as uh, sticking to, to tradition as this band is, they still had such weird punk rock roots as far as just getting in fights and playing weird spots. Sure. It really shows that, you know, we're all kind of in this together, no matter what you're trying to do musically. Both your guys' name is Greg. So how should we refer to each of you so that as not to confuse us and not to confuse people listening? Oh, you, you can call me GN. GN? Yeah. 
yet in the band we generally say like gn or g lee g lee and gn okay all right that's where we're going with g lee and gn i have a question i think this is going to be a g lee question only because i think gn you left hepcat right after the second album am i am i right in that i i left right before uh right before we signed on to do the third album okay so when hepcat played conan o'brien you were not in the band anymore yeah i was not in the band no okay i want to ask about that because i've i've probably watched this footage a dozen times and i've probably shared it with like a dozen people because i think it's such a great like clip of you guys and it's also like a great clip of like you know what's ska oh check this clip out here's a, here's a great clip of, of a ska band and i'll send them the conan o'brien clip of hepcat playing um can't wait yay <laughs> i was i was such a conan fanatic at, in that time period too so i saw it live you know and i was a fan so it was like extra exciting for me um so i'm curious i'm just curious what that experience was like you guys were i guess you were tapped to play that well at the time i mean a lot of us were fans of conan because he had this wonderful music supervisor um and i i keep saying this i don't remember her name but she was responsible for all the music that you saw on that show if you if you recall not just hepcat the you know um monique and uh save ferris were on there mm-hmm. uh, like and bands of course you'd never heard of that were just fantastic i mean they had a really good music program going on so when they reached out to us through elise rogers our then manager we're like sure but how are we going to do it we have a show that same night in philly (laughs) so uh yeah so we but we did it and then we just like booked ass out to philly to go play that show and it all worked out had you done anything of that caliber before as a band? Not of that caliber. We we did. I mean, I don't want to disrespect anybody else, but I mean, we did stuff that was like we did uh, the National Channel 4 in in, uh, in Spain, which was a, a big deal there. It was, it was awesome there. And it looked really cool. They had this great backdrop and they had like a, a studio audience. It was like acting like they were really dancing. it it was hilarious for us because we're like you're not dancing to us you (laughs) (laughs) yeah we had that uh we had we did something similar in australia um where it was kind of part interview part live performance where they asked me uh so the the song come out you know how did you feel writing this song when you knew that you were coming out. <laughs> it, was, it happened to be on the same same what? weekend as it it happened to be on the same weekend as Pride. So like I was just sitting there with my mouth open, like, uh, wait, what? What? <laughs> what? And they were all dead serious, like four people. Hilarious. So what walk me through though, is was you were you nervous? Was the band kind of like what a Conan? Oh my God. It it was like, you know, like negative 40 degrees in that studio to begin. So we're like all freezing after we left our like supremely cool dressing room. 
and then walk down that NBC lane, you know, that you've seen a thousand times, like Saturday Night Live and yeah. all the different shows. You've seen that where all the celebrities walk through there. We walk through there and we go into the studio behind like all the lights and all the electronics and everything and all the buzzing equipment. You can hear Conan out there. Oh my God, it's, it's really happening. It's really happening. I can't believe this. And uh, that, that woman came out, the music supervisor, and she's like, oh, I'm so stoked you guys are here. I'm actually from California. I saw you guys a long time ago. Like, she's like a longtime fan. So it, it made it easier to get on stage a little bit, a little bit. The second we went out there and realized, like, this is it, you know? Everybody, I think, except for Alex, he's like seasoned at TV you know, cameras and all that stuff. But I think I think everybody wanted so badly to just look at the ground. You know, <laughs> it, it took everything in me. And then I just found a spot above like some dead camera, not a live camera, you know, found a spot right above that and sang towards it. And it, it just, you know, it really worked out. You know, that was a a particularly like good period for hepcat we were we were playing really regular we were playing relatively consistently good for for our standards not for yeah. anybody else's i don't want to get me oh you guys <laughs> no no but for our standards we were doing okay and uh but we did not know how we would be on the night we weren't that confident and I, I think everybody just stuck to what they knew comfortably and we got through it. It was really cool. And then afterwards we like went over and shook Conan's hand and like for the first time in my life, I actually reached up to somebody to reach their hand. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, how tall are you? I'm not I'm not sure if you guys know, but that guy's like a monster tall human being. So I imagine everyone's just sitting, right? The audience just sitting. That's just how it works, doing like TV, right? Oh, uh, I don't recall seeing any audience. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't I don't recall there being any audience. I, I don't maybe there was. I don't recall that at all. Yeah, it's probably best not to watch the audience of, of people just sitting there because I mean that's just must be strange to be playing music that's intended to be dance music and it's a studio audience. Yeah, and it's it's like I said too. I mean, like I, I picked a spot to look at. And that's all I looked at. So if there was an audience, I didn't even know that they were there. You guys had signed to Hellcat, right? And this was the first Hellcat release. Right. Did it feel like there was sort of this potential for the band to go to the next level with all of that, with Hellcat and Conan and all this happening at this time? You know, it's funny. It, it's, <laughs> and I, I don't know how much I, I could say publicly, but... There's a whole funny story as to how Hepcat wound up on Hellcat and Hellcat wound up being called Hellcat. Um, you know, Hepcat being the band they wanted to first sign to the label, they actually changed the name or decided to make the name Hellcat after Hepcat. But mm. uh, how could I say this without like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, there's people's lives and stories that I, I don't want to mess with. Let's just say that there was well, we're just we're going with your recollection of it. So if if there is a different version of it out there, that's that version. This is Greg's version. My, well, my version is like dirty and funny. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> well, there was there was somebody there 
at Epitaph that was not quite in their right mind. And without that person not being quite in their right mind, I don't think Hepcat would have ever been signed. That same person came to us and said stuff to us about, you know, hey, you guys, this is what I want to happen. I want there to be a whole new genre listed in every record store in America and around the world. And you guys are going to be the first band to represent that genre. This person, this person had really, really, really big ideas that um, they, <laughs> they really <laughs> worked hard to uh, make real. And Hepcat was like driving the bus. So we'd like fly out for one show in Amsterdam, in a mall, in a, in a literal mall. And you know, there's nobody there, nobody that wants to see Hepcat, but that's how they do stuff. You go out and you play these little exhibitions in malls. Um, you know, that, and just for the one show, uh, there, were, there were all these like really, um, neat ideas I'm, i mean don't get me wrong i'm not knocking them at all i think the person is a genius um but they were just it just so happened they're out of their mind and the only way they would have been able to visualize all the, these possibilities is by being completely out of their mind at the time and having the money to throw at it and go yeah go do that you know we're we're opening for bands that up until that point we're like i can't believe we're opening for the Almond Brothers or Taj Mahal or Prince or <laughs> Sheila E. You know, like, yeah, this, this all happened. And I couldn't believe it. And, but all we could do was trust that person. And I, and I do believe uh, some people in the band trusted that person more than others. And also, too, it kind of led to people distrusting our management because I believe that she often got the blame for some of the kooky ideas that this person came up with. It was like, yeah, go do that. You know, and, and also too, if you have somebody with a, a bunch of guys who, who initially started playing really honestly and truly to play like one backyard party, that was, that was our goal. And if you, if you offer all that to a bunch of guys that have this type of, um th this was their entry into the whole thing i think it scared a lot of people when they're like yo go do this you know yeah we're gonna fly you here we're gonna fly you there and we're gonna fly you here we want to get you on the tour that's 45 dates long and we want to you know and it, i think it i think it it made some people go wait a minute wait a minute this isn't what we're doing but at the same time they knew that's what happens when you sign to to be on a record in a record company because none of us wanted or even for one minute thought that we were going to be like the next big thing uh we started with moon and then we went to byo you know and then uh epitaph approached byo for us so we never oh so wait to tell those stories byo and moon we didn't make shit okay and uh in fact, there was like a lot of argument as to like where our money went and how many records were sold and how many were pressed and how many were illegally pressed. Those between those two record labels, Hepcat actually shouldn't be a band anymore. I give I give the guys in Hepcat a lot of credit 
for surviving that. But but be those that situation as it is, when we went to Epitaph, we didn't we had the same expectation, not to get like ripped off or told that, you know, you guys don't sell any records. That's what we were told by one of them. Um, we didn't expect that. We just didn't expect more than just being treated fairly and being treated like musicians and like people who really enjoyed the music. So like a lot of times people are like, well, you guys signed to Epitaph, you're big time. We're like, no, 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 we just, we're just making records like we always did. You know, it's not a, it's not a real big fish sellout situation. It's not, you know, a no doubt looking for a record label to give them like ultimate exposure. It's, it's not any of those things. It was just our continuation of the same. So like, sometimes I get a little offended when we get lumped in with all like the, the whatever wave they lump us in with, because every single one of those bands, every time we get lumped in with them, we're talking about, yeah, we used to play these cool shows and all we really wanted was people to dance together. You know, that's what we're talking about. They're talking about, so we approached Sony, right? And we thought like we could get this label and we could get that. <laughs> and then we couldn't get it. But then we got it. We sold like a billion records and everybody hears us on every commercial. And, you know, it's like, I, 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 every time I see video of us like next to each other, you know, side by side, like it's Greg and Alex talking from Hepcat. And it's these guys from Real Big Fish. And then it's these guys from No Doubt. The stories that we're talking about nobody seems to notice are completely different we're talking about like yeah we just want to keep playing you know we don't want we don't want no stuff like of course it'd be great to be able to pay mortgages and all that stuff and you know put put aside an extra like how much for our kids uh, to go to school but that's not what we have what we have is love of the music and it love of the music doesn't equal like cool we learned to play money off of it that, that just never really occurred to anybody in the band, I don't think. I mean, yeah, Greg, Greg Narvis, I mean, I, I don't know. What do you think? No, I, I totally agree. I mean, since the beginning, it really was uh, for me and I think the rest of the band, it really was that we were playing music that we love. And, um, you know, in the beginning, we used to get, when we were looking for a record label, you remember, Greg, we used to get reps coming to our shows all the time and um, and they would tell us, I wish Elise kept that one uh, paper from that one. Uh, I think it was Capitol Records or someone huge. They came to our show and they had this little checklist and like suggestions that they had that we all laughed at afterwards because <laughs> they're like, yeah, if you want if you want to sign with us, this is what you should do. And they, they, they put like add more like guitar make it a little bit more funky <laughs> add like maybe rap or do it was like all these ridiculous all these ridiculous things that they were actually suggesting for us in, in order for, for them to consider us uh for their label and we just laughed and like you know elise asked us like well what do you guys think and we're like dude we're not gonna do any of that we play what we play and that's it dude. if you don't like it then you know find someone else and to elise's credit she said that's what I thought you guys would say. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, like the the major labels and all these people didn't understand ska and the subculture at all, but they understood 
punk rock and alternative music enough to like take a very slim selection of those bands that were close enough to it to be able to market them. But then there was all these other bands that were under the ska banner that didn't fit in with that. And they were just not included in that at all. And yeah, that was, you guys are a great example of that. And the only reason we were included is because of Elise. Yes. Yeah. She's the one hit that, that put us on the map and put us out there. Um, and the other thing I got to say too, is I have to give props to Bob Wayne that, uh, from Sunburst because when we first went in there to record our first album, he asked us and he sat down with us. And he was like, okay, what kind of sound? Wait, Gian, Gian, let him, let him, let him know who Bob, Bob Wayne is. Oh, he's the engineer, the sound engineer for Sunburst Studios. And he's, but he, he, which, what record is he responsible for? Uh, he's responsible for, uh, I thought it was for both out of nowhere and scientific. I'm, I'm just, trying to lead you to tell them to give them some backstory on the person <laughs> oh, okay all right so okay so it's 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 when we went in there for out of nowhere okay and um when he approached us he's like okay so what kind of sound are you guys looking for i had my old scott tape with uh club scott 67 on on me and i was like i'm gonna show you what i want and i put that on and you know it's like a total old like 60s jamaican recording with one mic in a room echo all over the place but that's what we wanted. And so I put it on the, on the tape deck and I'm like, here, this is it. And I played it. And I remember the look on his face and he's like, man, he's like, if that's what you want, he's like, you know, let's, let's change the room around. Let's get all the analog <laughs> yeah. stuff back in he's here. Like, <laughs> yeah. He's like, man, he goes, if you guys want to be, you know, if you want to be radio friendly, I don't know about that. And we're like, dude, I don't, so we don't care. You know, like that's, that's what we're looking for. And so like, but he worked with us and that's, I mean, that's why I had to like, you know, bless that guy. Cause he really had the patience and the understanding to work with us for those two albums and the equipment and, um, and the equipment too. Like he had all, he had a, a total analog setup, which was like perfect for us. I, I really, I really like how a Hepcat, how you guys managed to, not necessarily sound like you were a band that was, you know, like, oh, this was, was this recorded in the 60s? Wink, wink. Like you, <laughs> you the sound was modern, but really, you know, the reference points were clear. You so know, I, it's, I, you know, what's funny about that, though. Is <laughs> <laughs> way back, way back when we thought we sounded bang on <laughs> yes we yes. thought we were nailing it we thought we sounded so okay. original and legit like not original but like so um authentic authentic yeah. yes until we started to hear ourselves played back and we're like <laughs> oh maybe not but 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 that but that was actually a good thing too because through it we kept hearing kind of a similar thing that was uniquely our own and, yes. and that that was something of a of a motivator for us because it was like, dude, we actually sound like us. You know, we like it. I I remember you know singing uh, what what was the the toot song that we used to just tell me that. Just tell me that. Love. I'm in love. Oh, yeah. I, I thought we like hit that song <laughs> so perfectly. Oh man. I remember being so stoked that we, we got that song down. I was like, yes, like it's a Toots and the Maytow song and we're playing it. And it's like a song that we love. And it's like, man, that was crazy. That was like the biggest thing 
I mean, a couple, a couple of songs were like the biggest things that could have ever happened to us. I'm sure each of us went home and had trouble sleeping. You know, I, yeah. I remember calling my girlfriend and playing like the tape of it. I'm like, dude, we sound so good. Oh my God. You know, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't like, we're going to make a million dollars. No, it was, no. It was, we, we're playing those records that, you know, are so hard to find that we go, we, we go through so much trouble to find and then to, to uh, figure out the lyrics to and, and, figure out how the instruments are being played and how they're being recorded. You know, we didn't have internet to do all this. Like people are, Mm -mm. I I get a little bit of, not offended, but I I get, I get a little bummed because people are like cocky about the knowledge. And it's like, you went on the internet (laughs) and you got, we used to, we used to like, for speaking for myself, I used to like steal my mom's car. She probably won't hear this. I would steal my mom's car, (laughs) drive like, halfway across california to a record store i'd only heard about i'd only heard about i didn't even know if it was really even there and then go through the trouble of finding it and then the guy would be like yeah man i got some records in the back and it'd be like a dusty box full of 45s and it was like it was like finding god it it yes it was so and, and they were like oh that one there is five dollars seven dollars so i'd spend like three hundred dollars which was a you know, I might as well have bought a house. <laughs> that was a grip. That was a grip at the time, but I'd come home and play those. Nobody cared. I couldn't DJ that stuff nowhere. All I could do is play it for myself, my friends, my girlfriend, make mixtapes for certain people. But now it's like, ah, I don't want to get too deep on that, but how much did you spend for that 45? You know, (laughs) how much did you spend? Oh, and you know, oh, you know everything about Toots and the Maytals. Oh, yeah, you know, you know, that's cool. You know more. That's great. That's great. I'm stoked. How'd you learn about it? Well, there's this website about blah, blah. Like, eh, you've taken all the the adventure out of it. You know, like it, it, there was, there was such like. The thrill of the hunt. Yeah. And and here we were, eight guys who all kind of shared that that way of thinking and what so yes. when we finally put together one of these songs that we only had on dusty dirty 45 before we knew we can get that you know groove groove glide or something to clean them we didn't know any of that stuff we played them scratchy and poppy and everything and loved every minute of it yes we'll be right back after this Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I want to I want to talk about I want to talk about your guys' discovery of this because I feel like that's a, such an interesting story. Um, I want to start with with you, uh, GN. We'll start with you because we've talked about this before with my book, and and you wrote a zine about sort of your your journey to sort of discover the music and discover your identity within it. Oh man, that's a long story. Well, let's do like the short. The short version is that you discovered two tone, right, and then. You went from like rude boy to mod to skinhead. Yep, that's right. 
Now, being a two-tone fan in the early 80s in LA wasn't uncommon, but right, but being a skinhead who was into the old stuff, that was a lot less common, right? Yes, it was very uncommon. And um it's really weird how we how my friends and I discovered that because there's multiple fronts, but for us to have discovered something as simple as a book, that skinhead book by Nick Knight, that spelled it all. Like mm-hmm. that was probably the biggest uh, revelation to us that we're like, holy shit, the skinheads went back to the 60s, just like mods did, you know, because it was kind of weird. Like there was a divide back then where mods had all like the 60s soul and 60s R&B to groove to, while all the ska fans were just, it was all modern stuff. There was no old ska yet, you know. Well, there were, there were sprinklings of it. Yeah, but then, like, it wasn't until Trojan started reissuing all their old records, that's when all the old Scoth came in. And even then, it wasn't really known that well. Oh, no. And, like, yeah, for some time, it was, like, yeah, like that time when we were at Geno's, I talk about in my comic that, uh, you know, Geno's was a place where they had, like, what, a repertoire of, like, 20 songs that they just played (laughs) over and over, but everyone... Everyone loved it because there was no other place in the world that would play the songs and the music that we wanted to hear. And all of a sudden, the DJ gets his hands on that Club Ska 67 album, which none of us ever knew about. And what does he put on? But he puts on Phoenix City out of nowhere. And like, imagine listening to something like Little Bitch by the Specials or like Stupid Marriage or something fast and, you know, crazy like that, or even the Untouchables. (laughs) And all of a sudden, there's a break and then you hear this... You know, this totally poppy sound. Yeah. And it's like, Phoenix City! <laughs> and it's all like totally rickety sounding. And like, like it's like, like you went back in time to like the caveman era, you know? And it's like the tempo and everything about it is like completely different. That and Broadway Jungle. Yeah. And I remember all of us sitting on the dance floor going, dude, like, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know? But then like, but like Rob and I, like, Rob was like, oh, man, dude, I got to ask the DJ what the hell that was, you know? And so, like, that's how we found out that, you know, there was ska before ska, you know? There was ska before two-tone because he came running back to me. He's like, dude, I know what, what, who it is. It's like Phoenix City by Roland Alfonso and the Soul Brothers. And guess where we went the next day? We went down to Melrose and searched for that album. Bleaker Bobs. And, yeah, Bleaker Bobs or, like, <laughs> you know errands or uh, that that whole thing dude it was just like yeah and and it's discoveries like that that make all the difference in the world and this isn't a music that resonates with everybody either that's why i think it takes a certain type of person to really appreciate that stuff because like i remember when we were on the dance floor and that song came on you know rob and i were like totally like digging it while other people kind of like Winston are like oh man like the heck like this isn't ska you know and like some people went to sit down and like other people are just scratching their heads in confusion and and like we didn't even know like we're like dude what is this you know it blew us away so you liked it immediately yes yes even though it was a total departure from like the fast like you know like frantic you know sound of two-tone which i did love at the same time too but this just like opened up this weird door of like you know like oh you like that but check this out yeah you know and and like i said it was like it was finally a gateway for us ska fans 
to have old stuff to to listen to just like the mods did you know and 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 as a when we discovered the traditional skinhead thing from that skinhead book um it's like we had something to model ourselves after and we're like dude this is it you know there is one like extra thing i wanted to add about bob wayne uh when we went into the studio and this is right after i told them like hey this is what we want to sound like you know because like we wanted that scratchy old sound right like the one one mic in a room and this and that and of course like he kind of like went back and said like dude well you guys if you guys want to be radio friendly like i don't know i don't know if this is going to cut it so we insisted on that you know and he worked with us but at the same time he kind of sat us down and he was like you know you guys like I can appreciate you guys trying to capture this old sound and I can appreciate you guys wanting to sound like the Scatolites. I can appreciate you guys wanting to sound like anyone from the sixties and trying to emulate the sixties. But he was like, you know, you, you guys also have to understand though, that this is not the sixties. And even if you do get it down, even if you do nail this sound down and you can sound exactly like the sixties and you sound exactly like the Scatolites, he's like, what do you guys want to be remembered as, as a band? Do you want to be remembered as, hey, those are the guys that sound like the Scatolites? Or do you guys want to be remembered as, hey, that's the band, that's Hepcat? Yeah. And like, when he said that, that's when all of us had like a kind of, you know, our own revelation too. Like, you know, what are we aiming for? Are we aiming to just emulate like old bands, you know, and sound like old bands? Or are we trying to be Hepcat, you know? And it's, it's something that like, you know, just that little like pep talk that he had with us while we were in the studio, it really changed our direction and it changed our understanding of what our aim was as a band. You know, it didn't change like we still wanted what we wanted. You know, we did were we were aiming for the old sound, but we didn't have we weren't so hung up on trying to sound like, you know, the 60s or anything anymore, you know. Yeah. And that's why I really got to like thank that guy for uh for you know like just revealing stuff like that to us you know because we were all kids you know we didn't know we, we didn't know what we were doing we we're like about to record stuff that we love to play but we didn't know what involved you know what was involved in recording we just thought we'd go into the studio and just you know play and that's that but there's a lot more to it but yeah to to like continue with my um my thing though that's i think when when i first started you know, and the first time I saw Rude Boy in uh, junior high, like I said in my comic, like the way he was dressed, like totally just like, I don't know. It, that, that was another startling milestone in my life. The first Rude Boy I saw with the trench coat and the stingy brand wraparound shades and the, you know, the loafers with white socks and peg pants, that whole getup. Like nobody else in the school looked like this guy. You know, and it was just such a stark like character to me that I had to find out what it was, you know. And um at the time it was like ska had already kind of come in like in the early eighties, but it was like more of a novelty thing. You know, I saw people with like special stickers and madness stickers, like leftover stickers that were in school lockers, like from you know, the years before. And um, that's like 80, 81, because when I was there, it was like 83, 84. So these are old, old uh, stickers. 
And then when I would ask who they are, you know, I asked a friend who actually made those stickers and he's like, oh man, the specials are like the best band in the world, you know? And then he was like, oh yeah, there's Scott and this and that. And then when I started getting into it, the people that were older than me that had gone through that, like this weird, like checkered, not really rude boy phase, but they're just like, they like ska, but they didn't know that there was anything associated with it. Yeah. So when they saw that I was into it, they're like, oh man, you're like one of those, um, you're like one of those rude boy guys or like those mods. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, dude. Like, were you a rude boy? And he's like, what? He's like, I guess he's like, I like madness. And I, he's like, I just wore checkers all the time. Dude. I guess I was a rude boy. And I'm like, oh, I, yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> and like, I don't know. It, it was a weird, it was kind of awkward at first. So Greg, um, Greg Lee, I want to ask you though, because, because Greg uh, GN talked a bit more, um, but I want to talk to you. So from what I understand for you, the, the Scott, somebody, a brother maybe of yours showed you fishbone and then that led to you discovering untouchables. Is that correct? Well, he did he didn't actually show me he he told me like what i was into sucked and what i should be into is fish okay. <laughs> and, that, and, and that and that led me to like kind of searching them out without him knowing and he'll never know this because i'm not going to give him credit <laughs> <laughs> what, were, what were you into that he thought sucked uh well at the time i was a break dancer i was in the break-in yeah i was in the break-in and uh like in all things like having to do with breaking, there was a, a huge scene here that's still, you know, to this day, it's somewhat underground, you know, like Egyptian Lover and, you know, all there they were like great venues like World on Wheels and Sherman Square. Um, there was all this stuff going on. But at my school, we, we dress like, because I always dressed in vintage clothes because I always got hand-me-down clothes. So we had this, dance group me and a couple of my friends and actually Destin Barry uh the keyboard player was kind of in it as well and we were known as the ska boys before nice. we knew what ska was because people would say you, you guys look like you'd be in the ska so when I first went to a fishbone show I already blended in because I looked like the, their crowd which was like a kind no nah, they were a gang not kind of a gang <laughs> Uh, there was, <laughs> there was a game <laughs> called the posers yeah and, and the posers were like og la uh, mods and rude boys that had kind of gone the route of gangster they called them prep gangs at the time yeah and and they still kind of dress kind of dress apart but also kind of dress like gang members at the very same time so it was a little bit confusing um but they were like fully welcoming to me at the time like man you want to check this out you got to come next week check out the untouchables <laughs> too you know and it was like it was on and from that point forward i was that's all i was doing was like going from fishbone show to untouchable show to some other you know kooky show that they they knew about like some other la band you know all the la favorites like x and all those people and billy zooms and everybody who was playing at the time i went to all those shows but I was always like, when's the next Fishbone show? When's the next Untouchable show? And it was, they were playing so often that, you know, it was it was literally like a bi-weekly thing or more. In in Mark Wasserman's book, um, in the Untouchables chapter, you're you were interviewed for that. And um, 
for what I got from it is that the untouchables specifically, and probably the whole mod culture element of that was what really kind of hooked you in to this whole subculture. Is that, is that true? It's, it's very true because the untouchables, unlike fishbone were more attached to like what we call the quote unquote scene. Yes. Which, which is comprised or was comprised not so much anymore, but it was comprised of like a very healthy blend of like punk, ska, people in the ska, rude boys, mods, you know, and skinheads. So like if you went to an untouchable show, that is where you found people like wearing specials logos and madness logos and patches and and checkered or riding scooters. So it was actually more legit towards the scene where Fishbone was kind of like, everybody was there, you know, like there, there wasn't one way you could put your finger on like who the scene is with Fishbone. It was like everybody who loved to like really sweat and have a really intense time went to a Fishbone show. And they were kind of like, they kind of encouraged that anarchy. You know, they wanted to play with bands that were, they wanted to play with metal bands and just bands that, they felt the challenge to, um, you know, to, to be able to win the crowd over sort of thing. Yeah. Well, they, they rightfully so thought of themselves as every bit as good as them. And, you know, history has proven that they kind of are, you know, I mean, at at the time, I mean, in the moment at the time, it wasn't as easy to see as it is now, because you have to remember LA was like, a vineyard of like music there were so many different bands and so many good bands and so many you know kind of quirky bands that were good because they were quirky you know there was so much to choose from all the time for fishbone to stick out even a little bit is really huge and they stuck out a lot at what point did you get a scooter because that became an important part of your identity too right getting the scooter yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got a scooter around 1985. Um, it was stolen, of course. And uh, <laughs> of course, it was it was stolen. Of course, I didn't know any better. Um, but where do you where do you steal it from? Uh, UCLA. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> some poor college kid. I, I had some I had some friends that weren't you know they weren't like the best influences on me. We all had scooters. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, a couple of years later, I finally bought my own. And uh, that was like way more valuable to me because I wasn't worried about, you know, police. I had a license, I had registration, and it was my passport like out of the valley and into all points northwest, east, and south. You know, but I, you know, actually, I say that without context again because I have to remember when I say that. People are like, why would you drive a scooter? Well, that's because our option was a scooter, the bus, or mom's dropping you off. Yep, that's it. You know, and it, it wasn't like now where you have, you know, you could just like hop on a little flash of credit card or whatever and, you know, go like 20 miles on the thing. We didn't have Lyft. We didn't have Uber. Mom and dad's car wasn't as like readily available and not nearly as comfortable as your mom and dad's car of today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I mean, moms and dads didn't do what moms and dads do now, where they they would drive you like gr- gladly. There was some, 
But the majority are like, boy, you better get in this house before the streetlights come on. You know, so like, not only were, were we trying to, you know, get out of like where we live to go hang out with like-minded people, we had to sneak out and do it. You know, <laughs> like it was, everything was like one big, huge adventure. Yes. You know, it, it was a great time that fortunately for, for us and those who lived it, you know, some people say like, you know, those were the days, like Greg Norris is a part of, you know, like um they they say like those are oh remember remember this but the coolest thing about all of it that's ours forever there'll never be a time like that and i you know i could talk about it or not talk about it but the bottom line is i lived it and it's mine and you know i I honestly don't care like the people today that didn't experience it don't get it but one thing that one thing you should know is when you got a 200 cc but a helmet <laughs> hell yeah i was going to santa barbara <laughs> san francisco mexico yeah hell yeah i'd do it 55 miles per hour i'll get there no problem uh, but you, you you took your scooter all the way to san francisco i took my scooter almost to canada <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing hey there were parties yeah it, it, a big period behind that. There were parties. That's it. That's right. <laughs> I mean, and and the scene was such that, like, and Greg Narvis can attest to this. You went somewhere, like, let's say you went with your family on like a trip, and let's say it's Santa Barbara. You go to Santa Barbara and you're there with your family, and you're kind of trying to still look the part, even though you're with yep. your family. So you got a little bit of rude boy stuff on. Sure enough turn in the corner there's like eight of them <laughs> and, and, and it's, I get, it's instant bonding it's instant it. bonding and instant. I, I guarantee you anybody who had that experience they're all still friends to this day you never forget that yeah all all the people i met like uh grad night at disneyland they should have called that like rude boy mod night because <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it like when we got there with our school it seemed like everybody had a parka on and pork pies and ties it was like a whole scene related thing i met i met almost everybody i know from southern california on a single grad night way back when (laughs) wow wow yeah and we we've all we're all still friends i mean unless politically we've we've split apart or you know whatever or they've gone on with their lives and done other stuff but for the most part we're all still in contact yeah we'll be right back after this hey everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ how do people get qualified we want to hear your top artists to play on the bonnaroo 2024 lineup call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out it's the what podcast thanks when did you really start to discover and get into the old the older stuff like um yeah like at what point in this process you know you were very into the untouchables and all that but when did you really start to get into the older stuff or how did that happen the funny thing about the older stuff for me is when i was a kid um, my father worked at a studio in alabama and 
So you can imagine, it's just always music flowing through, always flowing through. But every once in a while, I'd hear this like circusy fun music. And I, and I realized years and years and years later, that was ska. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not I'm not trying to say like, oh, I'm dating myself so far back that I've been into it. I, I don't care about that. This is like true story. So when it came all the way around, um, you know, going through those first fishbone days, untouchables days, and then it might have been like Lino Trujillo or his then girlfriend Rosie or Joey Arquito. Our, our original bass player gave me a tape or loaned me a tape because you didn't give anybody anything. Um, <laughs> Scottolite stretching out. And that, that was after like Greg Narvis was talking about club Scott came out and, you know, like a couple of those compilations came out, but he gave me Scottolite stretching out. And I, I remember sitting in my room and just playing it over and over and over and over and over. Cause you know, you don't know i'm sorry context my my brother is a musician so like when i went in his room which i had to to listen to music i was surrounded by records so i i'd throw on like Jimi hendrix machine gun you know i'd just like flip through and like what's this and put this on and put that on so i had a huge library of music to 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 listen to and to explore but when i got that scottolites tape all that stuff stayed on the shelf for what felt like what feels like now it feels like weeks because that's all i would do i'd get home from school and i'd pop that tape in and i'd sit there and listen to it and listen to it and listen to it and then one day i i finally heard the thing that was making me gravitate towards it and it's the thing that greg Narvis does a double bump on <laughs> I, I don't know why but i i, I uh, it just it grabbed me i was like that is so freaking cool um, if, if you don't know what the double bump is, Greg Narvis can explain it. But after that, immediately after hearing it, I called up Destin Barry and I was like, dude, listen to this. And I put the phone to the speaker and he's like, what, dude, what am I listening for? And I was like, you don't hear it. <laughs> dude, listen again. <laughs> right there, right there. <laughs> you know, and it, it was that for like, I don't, I don't even know how long Destin will tell you, but it was a long time of like, dude, listen to it again. I don't know, man. You got to give me that tape because I can't really hear it that well through the phone. You know, and it was it's like, oh, yeah, I hear that. I, oh, yeah, yeah. And that that phone call was the genesis of Hepcat becoming a band. Because from that phone call is where we decided that somehow, some way, we have to put together people to try to play this music and the other music that was... Um, vocal and instrumental um that we'd been hearing it, it you know because it kept floating through like Narva said you kept you would hear something like what's that yes. and, you know and and it just kept happening that way and it was like we were starting to build up this rep uh, not repertoire but this like kind of i don't know uh what am i looking for looking we're, for we're, voltron <laughs> yeah yeah, it was it was forming together like Voltron. All these all these individual songs that we were hearing, <laughs> suddenly we we're like, we we have to play this because nobody's playing it, and it would be so cool. Can you imagine? Like people would be out yes. there dancing with their girlfriends. It would be so cool. Yeah, and that phone call is the genesis of the whole thing. So so, uh, Gian, 
let's let's explain the double bump. Okay. <laughs> you know what's funny is I, there's two possibilities of what the double bump is, but I have a feeling what Greg is talking about. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's the that's the one thing that I like to call the nib shuffle. Yeah. You know, and it's like <laughs> when you hear that, it just creates this jump in your heart. And it's like there's no way that your body can't like react to it. And when it's placed, you know, when it's placed in the right part of a song, it's like it gives you goosebumps. I get goosebumps just talking about it. Cause I remember right. the first time that I heard that, and I was like, oh my God. You know, like what's funny is the way how Greg's talking about stretching out in that album and how phenomenal and how much of a milestone that album was. That album is the one album that really laid it clear to me how Scott drumming was done because everything before that is a studio recording and the drums were usually pretty distant. And in order for me to learn, I'm self-taught. So like as a drummer, so when I was trying to figure out how Scott worked, all I had were those recordings, like Club Scott 67, uh, you know, whatever other uh, albums there were. Uh, and I would have to hold my ear up to the speaker, like pressing my face up against the speaker in order to understand and try to comprehend that the drummer is actually hitting the kick drum and the rim shot at the same time. Like, which to me, it didn't make sense. I'm like, why would anyone do that at the same time when it should be kick snare kick snare but instead this one's like kick and rim shot like on the twos and fours <laughs> and like it didn't make sense but sense but it was so funky but i couldn't like really grasp it until i heard stretching out because stretching out was a live recording and like the drums were like totally in your face and crisp yeah. and you could hear everything that was going on a really good example of, of what Narvis is talking about for anybody who wants to like hear it like automatically is uh maybe like Guns and Navarone, the, the yes. intro to that. Yep, that's it. And that yeah, and and when you hear that in the very beginning of the song, it's like, man, what the hell? Like you can't I don't know, you, you just have to be a certain type like I think like I said before, this music and this vibe and everything has a certain frequency that only resonates with certain people. That's you right. Know? Some people might hear that and they're like, what the hell? Like, what is this marching band shit? Yeah, other exactly. people like Greg and I and like other people are, you know, like when you hear that, it just resonates with you. It just wakes you up. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It just does something to you that no other kind of music, uh, you know, would do that, you know, have that same effect. And it's funny because you miss it at first, but you yeah. know something got you a second ago. And and that is why, like, listening to that that particular tape, stretching out thousands of times, because I kept not figuring it out. Because what do I care about the drums, you know, at the time? Why do I care about it? But then when I finally realized it is the drums, it it was, yeah, it was mind-opening. And, and the funny thing is... I don't know if I had already told you the story, but Greg knows. But speaking of, uh, you know, thinking of Voltron and how the band was being put together, uh, personnel-wise and music-wise, like the the whole reason why Greg discovered me is because I did that beat, or just a ska <laughs> beat, <laughs> during sound check when I was in an oi band. 
Yeah. And Greg was in the audience and he heard me. I only played one bar of a ska, like a ska rhythm because I was so into it that I was like, dude, I, I just want to play it. And yeah. it's because of that, that he heard that one bar and he, and what happened, Greg, you called Destin. You're like, then dude, it, I found our drummer. Yeah, literally. That's <laughs> and, exactly what and I didn't even, I was in an oi band. I was in Lions Pride and like our bass player, the one who started the band, he was pretty right wing. Like, and, and he, you know, he appreciated the whole thing that I was like, a, you know, a traditionalist and stuff. And I'd like the old style and everything. And colored. Yeah. And, yeah. And, but he was like, you know, he was also the type that was like, you know what, though, you got to keep up with the times, man. You know, like skinheads is about skinheads now. We don't listen to no old like, like songs, you know, talking about buying bread from the corner and nothing like that. We, we, you know, we listen to Oi. That's like skinhead music now, you know, so you got to keep up with the times, dude. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, dude. You know, if you like that, it's fine. You know, I like playing away, but like, dude, my heart's into reggae, dude. What can I say, dude? It's just my thing. And so, like, when I started figuring out ska, I would, I would like play it during our rehearsals, and it used to drive him nuts. Like, he couldn't stand it. And he's like, man, dude. He's like, I'm gonna tell you something now, dude. When you're here at the rehearsal, dude, we're a fucking oi band, dude. So you only play oi here. I don't want to hear any of that fucking ska shit, dude. So that keep that to yourself, but don't play it here. And I'm like, oh man, you know, but you know, it was our first show. We were playing at Madame Wong's. So this is uh, 1988. And sure enough, you know, I set up my drums. It was the first time I'm ever set up. And it's the first time I've ever, I'm ever mic'd, you know, and, and the drum sounded good. So what do I do? I play a Scott because I'm like, dude, this sounds great. And Greg just happened to be in the audience that night. And I only played one bar. And I guess that's how, you know, things happen because. Next thing you know, Martin, who was a guitarist in our band, he knew Greg. They were buddies. And he told me that he knew someone that was starting a ska band. And so the first thing I thought of was like, well, you know, a ska band, okay, fine. But what kind of ska? And Martin's like, dude, I think like he wants to do the old stuff, dude. And I'm like, really? And I'm like, okay. You know, and sure enough, like, where was that? Greg at the whiskey, right? Yeah. Like we met outside. Yeah. I forgot what show it was, but we probably donkey show. Yeah. I made it. Oh no, 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 no. We played donkey show. Sorry. It it would have had to been like bad manners or something. Maybe it was, ah, I wish I remember the show, but this was in 89. So it was something, but yeah, we, we, we met outside the whiskey because I think Martin said like, yeah, you could just uh, meet him. His name is Greg, whatever. And you guys could just meet outside. And so like, uh, I kind of knew who Greg was already, but we didn't know each other. Yeah, that was funny. And, I'm like, and oh, it's you. <laughs> yeah, that's the funny thing, too, about being in the scene back then. Because it was so small, and but it was full of, like, fiercely loyal people, you saw the same faces over and over again. And even if you didn't know them, you treated them like one of your own. You know what I mean? Like, it was just one big family. You know, you could be shoulder to shoulder with someone and never know their name. But like, it, it was just like, you guys were just one, you know what I mean? It was crazy. So I knew who Greg was, even though I didn't know who he was, you know? And, and like, I remember you had your, uh, you were smoking a cigarette, Greg, and you were like, so Martin tells me you want to join a Scott band. And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, dude. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah, man. Like, so you're starting one up. And he's like, yeah. I go, okay, so. You know, first thing off the top, I wanted to know. I'm like, okay, dude, I got to ask this guy, who is, who's your influences? And you know, the first thing that Greg said, he said the gay lads. And I'm like, dude, 
what the hell? And you're like, yeah, the gay lads, Ethiopians, I don't know. Tits in the Maytals. And I'm like, holy crap. Because like, <laughs> who would have ever said the gay lads as their number one inspiration for starting a ska band? And I'm like, holy shit. So I knew it was the real deal. I'm like, dude, this guy's not faking it, dude. Because like, you know, if he's going to say the gay lads is his first inspiration for a ska band, I'm like, man, that no one else is ever going to say that. So it was done. You know, there's like purists right now listening and they're like, how come you didn't say this band? How come you didn't say that band? <laughs> you know there are. Yeah, there I know, are, dude. I, I know there you're are. out there, you guys. I, I know you're out there getting on your computer right now trying to find somebody to one-up <laughs> tap, tap, me. Tap, 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 tap. You're 30 years late. <laughs> really, really fast, though. I'll, I'll just say one more thing. But that's kind of funny because so I was sold immediately when Greg told me that. and um. So on our first rehearsal, I was kind of curious what the rest of the band was going to look like, you know, and who I was going to be playing with, because I didn't know anybody. And so I get picked up by Alex, and we go to his pad in Venice, and he lived right off of the canals. And, um, you know, I'm sitting there, like, setting up my drums. He has this tiny place we're setting up in his living room. Alex was there. Greg is there. Lino walks in, you know. And I'm, like, waiting for the keyboard player. And I'm like, oh, okay, so who's the keyboard player? And in walks Destin. And he has a bomber jacket with a big English beat patch on the back. <laughs> and I thought it was a trap. I'm like, oh, man, this, is, this isn't going to be a traditional Scott band. It's going to be a two-tone band. <laughs> and like, oh, man. But, but it turned out that everyone, yeah, was on the same vibe. But for a second there, I was like, oh, my God, dude, I got, like, you know, bamboozled. But uh, no, it was all good. So, so there's a story, uh, and I actually heard the story from uh, G from Greg Lee, um, that you guys were you guys were playing with Scottalites, or I think, and um, Lloyd Nib pulled you aside and said, "Okay, you're not you're not you're not doing the drum beat right. I'm gonna I'm gonna teach you how to play the drum beat right." Is this? Uh, no, that's not me. That's not you. No, not 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 the beat wise. No. Mm -mm. But there's a there's a really big story I have about playing with the Scatolites, but that's not it. What about no no why why your drums go pop pop when they should go boom? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. That's the big thing about playing with the Scatolites on that tour. That that's another major milestone for us because, uh, you know, it's one thing to play with their idols, and it's one thing to meet them, but to actually share the stage with people who were like gods to you. You know, they're they're the pioneers are the people who made the music that you love. And it's like you're all of a sudden like standing and sitting next to them, talking to them and you're sharing the stage with them and they're playing your instruments like I just couldn't believe it. You know, and, and so like first couple of days I'm there and 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 it's not like I could even talk to Lloyd Nibs. I, you know, I worshiped I worshiped him so much that I was actually speechless whenever I was around him. You know, I, I wanted to be on my best behavior. I didn't want to say anything, like anything that would give any kind of wrong impression. So I was pretty much silent and just like, you know, when he would like go on my drums, you know, I just asked him like, was there anything he needed? And, you know, he was cool and just really mellow. And he never said he needed anything. And so I left it at that. But after a couple of days of playing, and this was in Santa Barbara, I believe, when uh, this happened, but he like was watching me play. And then afterwards, like he, kind of like scratch his head and kind of like cringed a little bit and he's like your drums man he's like why go fluff fluff when it up you go boom boom man 
And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, we'll go see what's inside your drum, man. You know, we have to take a look, you know? And then so like, sure enough, like he puts his head, like I had like, you know, that little cutout circle in the thing. And like, he puts his head in there and he sees all this foam in there. That's and right, like, that green foam. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, like I'm self-taught, so I didn't know, you know, I didn't know anything about sound dynamics and what a kick drum was supposed to sound like. And knowing, you know, coming from like the only uh, kind of influence or anything or knowledge that I knew of from seeing other bands and whatever was, I knew that people like to stuff their drums with something like a jacket or a blanket or anything just to dull it down and not have it go, you know, echo. Right. So I did the same thing. But since I was on tour, having a blanket or any kind of heavy thing in there was going to be too heavy for me to, to carry my drum. So what my dad did was he took apart an old couch and took all the cushions, the foam cushions out of it and lined the entire drum with that, the inside of the interior of the bass drum. So sure enough, it was as dead as a doornail, you know, but I thought that's the way a kick drum was supposed to sound like really like just dead. But obviously, Lloyd Nim was like, no, 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 you know, this isn't right. So what did he do? He went in there and he tore it all out. And then he and then I thought I was like scared because I'm like, oh, man, you're ruining my drums, you know. But like he he just put like a tiny little like towel or something in there against the head. And he went behind that drum and just like from that first <laughs> kick, I was like, oh, man, like he totally transformed like the whole sound from then. And um, yeah, that was pretty crazy because like I, I really don't think if. If I had, no, if I have not played with Lloyd Nip, I think I would have had that foam in there forever until like maybe like a sound guy from like, you know, some club, you know, would have commented on it. But before that, no one ever said anything about me having my drums like that. So like, that was just a big revelation, a milestone for, you know, our career too. Yeah, because other styles of music, that was normal. But, you know, I mean, what did, every, what did anyone else know about playing traditional ska? exactly yeah. yeah and like because i whenever i looked at other bands like either if it was on music videos or like any other kind of image of drummers that i ever saw i always looked at their kick drum and they always had something in there it was like you know just stuff it was always stuffed with something so i tried to do the same thing but uh yeah he was happy after that so greg lee um what was that experience like for you the whole scottalites playing with them yeah uh it was similar to Narvis where, you know, I felt the same way. I couldn't even talk to him. Like <laughs> it, it, it was funny to me that Lloyd Brevet always seemed to want to say something to me, but I couldn't understand a word he said. And I was so like, you know, this is Brevet, you know, like I, I just couldn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to say what, you know, I didn't want to, I would just like, like <laughs> I, I do some like stupid laugh. And then he'd look at me like, this boy's a fool. You know, like, <laughs> it, it was hard. Uh, the only person that, I mean, I, I did, I had a good relationship with all. I, I spoke to them as much as anybody spoke to them, you know, cordially, but not like chilling and laughing until years later. Um, but when Doreen Schaefer came on board, uh, she was very nice to me and, and spoke to me and made me feel comfortable like she she did the uh the code switch for me you know she'd mm -hmm. kind of english up her her patois a little bit so that i could understand a little bit better because i could see her looking at me as i'm listening to those guys and and she would look at them like 
why are you talking like that? You know, he don't understand you, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and, and, and she would, and she would stop the, she'd be like, Gregory, now what this in is, you know, like she'd, she'd like break it down like I was a child, but it, it was exactly what I needed. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So, Narvis, you told me a story about um, going to Fender's Ballroom in, like, I think, 86. Uh, 86, February. Yeah. Uh, Bad Manners. Yep. Bad Manners and Fishbone. So, <laughs> so that was February 6th, I think. So, Greg Lee, were you at that show, too? I was. Okay. So, so Narvis described this as being a very, you know, important moment in the scene kind of coming together and yes. and i've actually talked to uh like chris dowd from fishbone and he acknowledged it as well but kind of from his point of view he was seeing a lot of the, the bands kind of forming and being influenced by bad manners and fishbone i'm curious what was that show like for you uh you know in in total truth i don't have a whole lot of memory of it i just remember you know that was like the show that the next show was would be there was a band that was kind of trying to be like fishbone called mama stud um then there was a a new mod band not a new one but kind of been around big express like there were suddenly there were all these bands that were beginning to be like baby versions of the the big bands and every time a big band would come in, there'd be three baby versions of other bands playing with them. And one of those bands was no doubt, you know, kind of, yeah. Because, I mean, they at first they started out being a very just like strictly kind of no doubty California ska band. But then the Fishbone influence like blew around L.A. around 1985. And there was uh, the Crooks, Mama Stud, no doubt had that kind of, you know, suddenly we're funky look. Uh, the Chili Peppers, who up until that point were like a really dumb band. Not to say that they're not dumb now, but they were a really <laughs> dumb band. <laughs> True men don't kill coyotes. What? What? <laughs> what? But, you know, like, there, there were, so there was, there was a bunch of bands like that. And then there were uh, bands that were, directly influenced by more so than the two-tone bands but by the untouchables like the upbeat and um to some degree the the specs you know like uh the skeletons were kind of their own thing but it it was a time of like of like rebirth and renewal as far as like everything that we loved before was we, you were able to start to see live whether or not it was like true to what they came from didn't really matter, especially to the fans, because they're like, cool, there's, you know, I could actually see another band like Fishbone when Fishbone isn't playing, you know, and 
And that that also gave birth and rise to bands like Sublime, who kind of found their own little vein to get in playing their particular variety of ska and reggae. My memory of, of all those shows, though, are mostly the fights. <laughs> yep. That, that was an interesting time because they were, you know, like in, in L.A., we had Hepcat. And I, I say this a lot, you know, a lot of the only reason Hepcat sometimes were able to actually play was because of like the violent, like skinhead gangs that kind of saw us as theirs. Yes. You know, so like if any trouble came in, they took care of it and they took care of it. And then they'd turn around to the stage and be like, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> meanwhile, we're like, dude, maybe we should stop playing. Why do they always fight during love songs? So these were just like random fights from your point of view, just people just being dumbasses or. It's a, it's a mix of things. Like Craig was saying, you will have some people like, well, you know, outsiders to the scene that would come in and try to be cocky and try to have an attitude with the, you know, our crowd, which would not work with the skinheads. And then unfortunately there was like territorial things and a lot of factions going on. Remember that one time we had the, which one? Uh, the one time we had the two territorial um, band followers in one show, Alligator Lounge. Oh man, that's another story right there. Oh geez, talk about wow. Okay, when scenes collide. What's the name of that band? It is Horny Toad. Horny Toad. That's right. Do you, wait, Aaron and Adam, do you guys know who Horny Toad is? I don't know Horny Toad. Oh boy. All right. So they're a Venice band. They're from Venice, and uh, some of the, man, there's a lot of history here. But anyway, to put it simply, when we started playing, uh, when we started getting a, a few shows under our belt, you know, promoters started looking at us and were like, hey, you know, these guys, maybe we should have them play. And so out of nowhere, one time we got offered to play the Alligator Lounge uh, with a band called Horny Toad, whom I knew about. And the only reason I knew about them was because I knew some uh, some punks and some heshers in, in high school that were into the Venice scene. And they actually hung out with with uh, Sueys, which were suicidals that were the gang that followed suicidal tendencies. Now, suicidals hated skins with a passion. They were like the number one enemy of Sueys. And when I talk about skinheads, I'm talking about like more like the bald punk and like just, you know, it was more just the image thing. Like any, if you were like had a shaved head and braces and boots and that was it, like it, you were just, they didn't care uh, about anything else. They just knew that you were a skinhead. You're just asking for trouble at any punk show if, if there were suies around. So anyway, this band Horny Toad was like more of like a ska, like, you know, punk ska, like funky band that was just kind of reflective of Venice in general. But they had a huge following, a huge Venice following, which included Sueys, because I think their bass player was actually from Suicidal Tendencies. Um, but either way, so like when the band got word of the show. I set up that show, GM. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, OK. I didn't know that. OK, so like anyway, I remember maybe it was you or someone else mentioned it at the uh, at rehearsal. And then they're like, yeah, we, you guys want to play a Alligator Lounge? And I'm like, yeah, okay, we're down. And I'm like, who's going to play with us? And they're like, oh, some band called Horny Toad. And I'm like, oh, man, 
dude, horny toad. And I'm like, dude, this, this show is going to be a disaster. And like, nobody knew what I was talking about. And I'm like, dude, like that horny toad band, it's all Venice, dude, which includes suicidals, dude. And I guarantee you something's going to go down, dude. Like once they see skinheads, dude, it's, it's going to get ugly. But we decided to do it anyway. And sure enough, man, it got ugly, like right, right from the start. Because like you have like, um, you have like this Venice crowd that, you know, they're always on the lookout for skins, right? The Sui's and anyone that's associated with them. So they're already in the place. And then of course you have skinheads like walk in, but not the skinheads that they're like, you know, that they, that they're probably like thinking of, which are more like the bald punks and maybe like the oi skinheads or whatever. These are totally traditional like skinheads that are just there for the music like everyone else. But once they see that image, they're like, dude, what the fuck is the skinhead doing here? You know, so they mad dog the skins. And of course, the skins aren't going to let themselves. So they're going to look back and they're like, what the fuck, dude? What are you guys looking at? You know, so that was it. The friction started right away. And like, I remember being in the crowd and like seeing like, you know, um, this one like Cholo dude, like, you know, like mad dogging a skinhead. And then like the skinhead would look back at him and say like, you got a problem, you know, and the, and the Cholo's like, dude, like, you know, you're a skinhead. And he's like, yeah. He's like, so what the fuck, dude? What are you doing here, man? And he's like, dude, I'm here for for Hepcat, you know? And like the guy's trying to drop the history lesson, you know, but dude, you know, these guys aren't going to want to hear any of that. You know, it's just the fact that you're a skinhead. That was it. And so, um, yeah, sure enough, the, the show got really ugly. There's a lot of violence. And, and next thing you know, a riot, just like total riot broke out. And uh, it was a mess. Did you guys play? Yeah, we played one song. <laughs> I, I played. I played two. Oh, okay. Remember? No, remember because I did a uh, um, can't wait for the first time acoustic with Chris Murray right before. Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. I can't play one song. <laughs> Do you remember which Hepcat song you oh, played? Oh man, I wish I knew. But the whole night, you could feel the tension just rising. Like there's just fights left and right bouncers were getting beat up and like you know and when horny toad like when we played there was already this electric you know just this tension in the audience like there was just too much friction going on so we're trying to settle everyone down by going on stage and playing a tune but right after that first song everyone's attention was diverted into the back because like there was a fight just about to happen right you could just see it you could see everyone just looking at this this like epicenter you know where something's about to go down and you could feel in the air and like the funny thing is like uh dave fuentes uh the bass player and i what we used to do whenever like a fight would break out is we used to play punk rhythms because we're like okay you guys are fighting then this must be a punk show so him and i would just bust out in like a punk thing and sure enough him and i took a cue and we looked at each other like yeah this is a punk show so we started playing punk and that just like Blew the place up, man. We're like, oops, like, okay, maybe that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> and like, yeah, but it was, it was really like, like a powder keg about to explode. And like, yeah, it was, it was a crazy night, man. Yeah, the, a lot of, a lot of stuff went down. Like the, this one guy was, uh, he had parked right in front of the club, which was like impossible back then. The parking was horrendous. And I remember him telling me, like, uh, when I was hanging out outside. This guy like came up to me, this total rude boy. He's like, dude, check this out, man. I got my, I got a space right in front of the club, man. He's like, isn't that cool? I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. He's like, dude, I can't believe it. I've been here so many times. I always have to park like way far away. And I'm now I so parked lucky. in front. 
you know? <laughs> and then like, um, dude, after the show, I go back out there, his car's totally gone. And all you see is just like br- busted like safety glass and half of a club. You remember those club things that people used to do to secure their car? <laughs> so half of his club is on the ground and it's, and, and the glass is busted. <laughs> and he comes out and he's like, dude, where's my car? And I'm like, oh man, like, dude, I think, I think someone stole your car, dude. And like, yeah, he was bummed. But then like, yeah, that, that whole ride thing spilled out into the street. Like, uh, I, yeah. I know people got they stopped the bus. They stopped the city bus and like, yeah, broke the windows. They broke the windows out of the bank across the street. Uh, yeah. Someone like got hit by a car, I believe. Um, yeah, it was a total mess. It, it it just blew up, and and I knew it all along. I knew as soon as I heard that horny toad name, I was like, "Man, dude, this show's gonna be a disaster." So that that's probably like the worst example of the fight times for Hepcat. I mean, there there were other things that you know that we saw, like people getting beat up, big huge fights. They were bad, but as far as like our this is our experience. This is like a Hepcat show that we put together that just completely yes. imploded. Man, we we had to hide in the back room, which was this tiny little like closet practically. And I swear, like, if you just listened to the to the utter chaos that was happening right outside that door, it was like the place was just like rumbling like an earthquake. There was that much stuff going on. It sounded like a tornado was right outside the door. It's insane. I mean, that's all you heard, just deep rumble and just like everything shaking. And all you hear is like bottles being thrown, like glass breaking, like chairs being like hurled across the, you know, it, it was just all out chaos. It was crazy. Do you guys ever get dragged into into that? Like people fighting? No. Well, early on, early on, because I always, like my then girlfriend would always be like right in front of the stage. So like I'd always be watching her nervously because I knew what was possible. And there were a few times where, you know, she would get pushed around too much and I, I would like jump off the stage. But not I, I didn't actually get into a fight, but it, you know, like escort her to safety kind of thing. Yeah. So it's a different it's it's kind of a a weird, you know, you have this relationship with a crowd that's like known for, you know, violence and stuff. It's it's a really awkward spot because when you come from that scene, you understand everything, you know, but people that are just outside of that scene, the only thing they see is just violence and they just automatically deem it as senseless. And a lot of times, you know, if, if you have like territorial, like, you know, spats and whatever, and just, you know, clicks like battling with each other, then that's that. But you got to understand though, that these people really did see us as theirs, you know, and finally a band that they can, really relate to and a band whose music they really truly love you know and that's where that faith that's where that faith like comes in and all of us from the band being from that scene earlier on just a few years earlier we know exactly where they're coming from you know and and we didn't have that we we had you know we had we had it to a certain extent but not in the sense of like if you were into old scott dude you you know, there wasn't any bands like playing that back then. And like, as like Greg and I constantly say, it was just a thing that you would only hear this music in between bands that the DJ would play, you know. Was this stuff happening solely in Southern California, the violence part of it, the territorial stuff, or was when you would 
go to other parts of the country would it be happening to no it was just la <laughs> <laughs> it was just la that's it man just the whole snow southern california dude that's it you can't unfortunately you can't escape like i mean what i think you know this gang mentality it just you know seeps into every subculture whether you like it or not you know because you're surrounded by it you know and, it, and it's just kind of like a survival thing too so i mean it's unfortunate but that you know i just i just came to accept it as you know just the way it was like i knew like every time we played i always had a feeling that something was going to break out especially if there was a lot of skins in the audience there was definitely going to be some beef here and there so aside from the um the suicidal tendencies uh gang who was was there who else was there like the main the main beefs with uh between like the the skinhead or the or the your guys's crowd i th I think a lot of i think a lot of the things stem from misunderstanding you know like i said the skinhead image itself is like you know especially if you have the mainstream media like you know touting everybody as you know nazis and blah 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 you know that's the first thing people are going to see like when they see a skinhead they're automatically going to assume that and i think some people you know that were outsiders and they come to our show and they see skinheads you know they're automatically like wait a second like what are these guys doing here so there's already that kind of tension and then like if you have skins in the audience and they're there you know to see us and there are like followers and stuff they're kind of going to be a little bit you know standoffish to anyone that doesn't appear to be in the scene you know there is a, a kind of attitude there and so if you have some total like you know jock or like a surfer dude or some guy that just you know comes in and he's like yeah dude like man, this is awesome and you know and they start like getting a little unruly and just like bumping into each other and stuff and and bumping into skinheads dude that's it you know it's like they they just won't tolerate that but i i, I think also greg um a, a lot too what happened was a lot of these guys you know they were just normal people before mm -hmm. and once they got their head shaved and they got correct and they they got accepted by the crowd they there's a certain amount of toughness that goes with that that's true too and, and for them and i i've known a lot of people like this that's why i say it i've, I've watched is a lot of times guys would get into it and they'd be so kind of pumped up on the adrenaline of being accepted and being a part of this like subculture that for the first time in their lives they're like i'm kind of tough and unfortunately, they would get drinks or whatever at a show. It makes you tougher. <laughs> and they would get, their adrenaline would pump up and they'd get the courage to like actually say something to that person they thought was threatening and there'd be a fight. And and that's how it went. No, no one actually ever really won any fights. No, it's always just a scuffle. And like, you're right. There's no... There but, but that because no one actually won that's what perpetuated it that's what made it like well shoot i could fight and not get that hurt and suddenly everybody was fighting and of course some people got really really hurt and if any of them are listening i know who you are and i still remember but a lot of people a lot of people came out of it with bumps and scratches and thought like this is kind of cool yeah and i i actually I was actually able to show myself as being a tough guy. But the problem is they always chose to do it during a love song because that's <laughs> when they couldn't 
you know, like the, the energy in the room wasn't high enough and they were still pumped up on their adrenaline and we switched to, you know, prisoner of love and they just couldn't handle it. It's as simple as that. I, I think what happens is when we play ska, it puts everyone like in a better mood. And then when we switch to a love song, it kind of creates this open meadow all of a sudden where like people are just like, you know, just still. And I think that's when people are just open this can of worms and just get it on, you know, because nothing was really happening. Got to stick to the ska songs, no love songs. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what it was, but Greg's totally right. Greg's totally right. It would always happen in the slow songs, man. But but that that's also the cool thing about being in Hepcat is um, my experience has been we played all these like weird shows that I told you about, but they put us in front of all these audiences. And uh, the cool thing about being Hepcat is that we'll we can always be Hepcat. We don't we don't have to like pose. We don't have to go hard for any particular show. We always play at our we always what I call it is we always run our own race. So like while everybody's doing their thing, it's like they'll either suffer while we're playing or they'll <laughs> they'll get into it while we're playing. Do you feel like there's a lot of people suffering? I mean, I think you guys are awesome. So there are people who just like they've decided a long time ago for reasons unknown to even them that they don't like Scott. Yeah. It's as simple as that. And and they just they cannot go back on it. But then, you know, a lot of those people would say, you know what? I was one of those people who said, I hate ska and I'll never listen to ska. And then I saw and heard you guys and that changed. So that's good. I definitely will show Hepcat to people who feel like they don't like ska because their entire exposure to ska is, um, you know, whatever, whatever was on the radio in the nineties. And that's all they understand of this word called ska. And it's like, totally get it. Yeah. I totally get it. There's so much more to this music. I mean, nothing against any of that, but it's like there's so much more to this music than you are aware of. So let's let's try to broaden your sense of that, the style that you've decided you hate. I, I think it's not the style; it's the people. You know, it's not that they don't they they hate the style. It's just they can't stand the people like running around in checkers and weird little funky hats and skipping around. <laughs> <laughs> skip it around hey i i understand but but like you said that's not all there is the problem is that ska as a word has been kind of hijacked by everything that isn't ska so like if you say you like ska you're in people's minds you're also saying yeah i like that kooky guy that wears the checkers and the, has a checkered car and like skips around all the time at school you know they they can't do that. So instead of saying like, oh yeah, well, no, that's not all there is. They're like, no, I don't like Scott because I don't want to be associated with that person. So on Scientific, you guys covered uh, Marcus Garvey, uh, which is probably maybe my favorite song on that record. I think that song came out, your your version came out really good. Uh, I'm, God, I'm, I forgot about that song. Dang it, I should have put that on the set list. Put it on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious if there's any any uh, if there was any thought process or, or you know what what led to you guys including that song on that record. Well, uh, let's forget about the record. Let's talk about why we played it in the first place. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reason we played it in the first place was one of those expeditions I told you about, where we like drove out and found records, 
And one of them was a little 45 with a white label that just said Tanamo on it. And uh, it had Marcus Garvey on one side. I still have it. I just can't remember what, what's on the other side. I think the other side might be a Calypso song. Um, but it had Marcus Garvey. And if you, if you listen to the original of it, you'll fully understand why we played it. So YouTube it. All right. <laughs> Got some homework for us now. Yeah. Uh, why are you guys so good? <laughs> like, seriously, like, I don't know any, any bands that, like, anybody who's like, I don't like Scott, like, like well, I, I like Hepcat. Well, it, it, it's like we said, though. I mean, all these bands, actually, I'm sorry, I didn't say this, but all these bands, you know, they talk about waves and they, they go up and down and I, I check out the I check out the, the different pages and they're like arguing about ska and all this stuff and who's more ska and who isn't ska. And we just watched all those bands come and go. It's not like we want to be a part of their whole chit chat, talk about each other world. We don't want to, we, we just want to exist here. You know, like we're playing music because we want to play music. We're not, we're not going out on tours for like, you know, a year at a time. We're not, we're not doing any of that. We play strictly when we want to. We play based on what, if there are people who want to see us and we generally, genuinely recognize that they want to see us, it's not a hype thing. It's, it's like, nah, we like you guys and we want you to play. That's what we want to be playing. So we, we get out. So I, I guess in short, we're not trying all that hard, you know? Mm-hmm. We, we make we make mistakes, we laugh them off or we argue about them, but we, we don't see ourselves as good, just so we got that clear. We see ourselves as just a band who keeps going. All this other stuff that's been going on since, I don't know, since this, what is it, was it the third wave, Greg, or the fourth? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure, dude. Like, everyone refers to the 90s as the third wave. Okay, so like when when all that began, we're like, oh, so there's like a wave, you know, and 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 everybody's all excited, They're like, oh, I got a new band, oh, I got a new band, oh, we got a new band, you got to hear us play, and we we just cool, cool, cool. Meanwhile, all in all, I mean, when when it when it all comes down to it, we've just been playing, yeah, this whole time or not playing, but this is just what we do and how we do it. We love our job. I agree. That's just how music and bands work. And I feel like that's something I try to explain to people, like, because people want to put things into these boxes or they want to have this, this narrative that makes sense where it's like, this happened, then this happened, this happened. Well, there's also all these individual people and individual bands that have their own story that they don't have to do necessarily with the next person's story. So just because two-tone happened and then that influenced fishbone and then fishbone influenced you know these 90s oc bands or whatever that's not the whole that's not how it all works for everybody no well that, and that's definitely not where it begins fishbone influenced these bands it begins back go go back to fishbone <laughs> what about fishbone you know yeah <laughs> like oh yeah this band was in you know we we're influenced by fishbone we we're influenced by fishbone and they they're like all over for a while they're all over like 
everything you see, every Starbucks you go into and blah, 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 blah. And you're not hearing Fishbone. Meanwhile, Fishbone, in their own way, we're more like them in the respect that we've just mm-hmm. been here. We, there's no wave for us. This is just what we do. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You know, check check out where a couple of those third wave bands are now. Where are they? They're not even they're not even kind of bands or they're in a completely different style band, which is what where they started in the first place. Or they're just gone because they don't feel that sky is profitable. And that's that's not what it should be about. Ask the Scatolites. You know, those guys persevered, you know, working at airports and working, you know, working in warehouses and doing all this stuff all these years. They come back and there's this little tiny crowd or little tiny crowds all around the world that are just blown away to see them. And they watch as those crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And fortunately, through the love, these people found um, a career for the rest of their lives you know like that's just what they did but there was a time where it just stopped for them you know and thankful to everything being that they were able to enjoy all all their years playing that they did towards a lot of their ends but there's still a few of them alive Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you normally download podcasts. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's at In Defense of Ska. You can also sign up for my newsletter at aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get the podcast sent directly to your inbox every Wednesday. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has a great band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.